the way that you know it's unquestionably a vote loser to say something negative about the American military is a weird cultural feature of this country. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and this is the Editor's Roundtable. Today I'm joined by FP contributor Rosa Brooks, a senior Future of War fellow at New America Foundation and a professor at Georgetown University. Also with us is another FP columnist, Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. And finally, we have Tom Ricks, a senior advisor on national security at the New America Foundation and a longtime contributing editor here at FP. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So, recently, the President of the United States, a man who was elected to get the United States out of Iraq and out of Afghanistan, has reluctantly come to the conclusion that we are going to leave 5,500 troops in Afghanistan well into, you know, at least a year into the term of the next president. So that means that one of his legacies will actually be leaving active conflicts in both Iraq and Afghanistan to the next president of the United States. Rosa. <laughs> yes, David. <laughs> Is there something expound, you want to ask me about? Expound. <laughs> you know, that's a little bit unfair to President Obama, I think. Uh, number one, of course, he did not, in fact, campaign to end the wars in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. He campaigned to end the war in Iraq and finish the job in Afghanistan. Oh, well, thank you uh, for that. Well, but, Those... that's, but that's kind of important, right? I mean, he, he, he said— uh, I'm going to we, – we've taken our eye off the ball in Afghanistan. He used all sorts of other sports metaphors. We're going to carry this down the field. We're going to get to you know, home base, et cetera. Um, and he found that that was a lot harder than he had imagined. Uh, you know, his initial instinct was to uh, increase the number of troops. Uh, then he got cold feet about that for some understandable reasons and decided to get them out. And now, obviously, he's deciding that maybe taking them all out was a little bit premature. Um, I – don't I also I, I'm not sure it's necessarily such a horrific thing to leave troops somewhere, right? I mean, we we have we have troops stationed all over the world. Uh, we kept troops in Korea. We kept troops in Germany. We kept troops in Japan. Obviously, for decades, they're still there. Um, so I'm not sure that in and of itself is something to reproach him for. I do think I do think it is absolutely fair, though, to say that the president and not the president alone, obviously, but many other people as well, but Buck does stop with him, that the president misjudged the situations in Iraq and Afghanistan a couple years back and thought they were going to be more stable and stay more stable than has been the case. And, and that, that was a screw-up, and that's something I think that is going to you know, be, be part of his legacy, unfortunately. Hey, Tom, Rosa recklessly mischaracterized my statement. Because I didn't reprimand Obama for leaving troops there. I didn't make a value judgment on it. In fact, personally, I think he didn't have any choice and it was the right thing for him to do. Um, but she makes an interesting point. When we go into places like uh, – when we've been in places like Germany and Japan and Korea, we've left troops there. We've left them there for a long, long time. We've left troops in Sinai. We have people 
in lots of these places around the world. And in fact, it tends to be where we leave troops behind. Those tend to be the situations we look at as being successes. Does the Powell Doctrine sort of have it wrong? You know, we have to have an exit strategy. Maybe maybe once we go into or if we're thinking of going into a country, we really ought to sort of weigh it on the basis of whether or not we're willing to stay. What do you think? I totally agree with that. I think the two great banes of American military thinking are the Powell Doctrine and sports metaphors. And when I hear the two mix, I reach for my gun. Um, Hold your fire, Tom. The whole notion of basketball, football, and baseball having analogies to how we operate in warfare is terribly wrong. In fact, the only sport I think one should use in analogies when discussing Afghanistan is Buskashi, the Afghan sport of goat dragging, um, which has no boundaries, no borders, and I've seen a spectator killed during the game. That's real a real sport to analogize. You are actually the head of the the main Buskashi League, is that correct? And honestly speaking, I guess a former member of the Afghan Ski Patrol. I know. I was just thinking that, <laughs> Tom, this is, this is a little-known fact about Tom Ricks. He's probably the only person in the Washington, D.C. foreign policy establishment who has gone skiing in Afghanistan for fun. In more than one place, too. I, I, we, we used to ski at, just outside Kabul near Pogmon, but also up in the Salang Pass. Well, there are plenty of people who've seen their best ideas go downhill in Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually think that with Obama, uh, it's exactly the right thing to do. And in fact, this is where we should have done in the fall of 2003 after the fall of Kabul. I'm sorry, the, the fall of 2001 after the fall of Kabul a small force of 5,500 troops. That's not enough to really do anything. It's a regime protection force. And you probably will only have, a 5,500 troops, about 1,000 genuine shooters. So what you're talking about is a reinforced infantry battalion that will probably have a little bit of armor attached to it and a few attack helicopters. This is enough to protect your friends in Kabul and not much more. Why is that a good idea? Because that's basically what existed in Kabul historically. The president of Afghanistan was basically the mayor of Greater Kabul. And he, you don't, if, you're, if you're just in that position, you don't get in fights you don't need over Kandahar, over Oruzgan province, home of the Taliban, which is basically the hillbillies of Afghanistan. You don't need to go be fighting with the Hatfields and McCoys down there. Just take Kabul, keep it, keep it peaceful, um, you get occasional car bombs, yeah. But that's not a bad approach. And I think Obama has finally dispensed with the sports metaphors and gotten down to what he needs to do in Afghanistan. Corey? So two things. Uh, thing one, I want to come back to arguing about the Powell Doctrine because I disagree with Tom uh, and Rosa on that. But to second, I agree that the president was right to extend uh, American forces in Afghanistan, time was always the wrong metric for judging the end of our wars, right? Conditions, not time, are how you should determine whether you've achieved your objectives. And fair enough to say that time is a price we pay, but it's not the only price we pay. And if the president had not in 2009 in his West Point speech uh, announced the increase of troops in Afghanistan and when we were going to withdraw them, the price we and Afghans paid wouldn't have been so high. Afghans are paying the main price now, and 
and that's both as it should be because it's their country that they're fighting for. But you can see in the casualties taken by Afghan security forces that they're really fighting for their country. They deserve our help. And I agree with Rose's point and David's that the we tend to stay in places because we care about the outcome there. And it's the caring about the outcome that over time helps make it successful. You want to pick up the Powell Doctrine thing? You said you would. <laughs> Gladly. So the Powell Doctrine, uh, having an exit strategy doesn't mean a precipitous exit strategy, right? We have an exit strategy for Japan, which is when Japan becomes a normal country that doesn't frighten its neighbors and be frightened of its neighbors, we can withdraw from Japan. But that day has not yet come. And the Japan we have is actually a really good one, a, a an anchor for American interests in the region. And so it merits us staying there. I don't think Americans object to our long-term commitments to places. What they object to is when it looks like the government doesn't know what it's doing and it's very costly. Yeah, but the, the, um, that's not what Powell meant by the exit strategy, multi, multi-decade. This is the Shockey corollary to the Powell Doctrine. Yeah, I mean, this is the, this is the Corey Shockey remix. Uh, and it's got a it's got a much better beat to it. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Than the original. Uh, the original was we're going to go in and, and get out, uh, and that you, you saw it executed by Powell in the Gulf War, with calamitous results. You saw it imitated poorly by Tommy Franks in Iraq in '03, with with even worse results. Uh, now the, the the Corey remix, I actually I think is right, but it's certainly not what poor old Powell meant. So I. My perspective on the Powell Doctrine is that it is not determinative as to political objective and end state. I think about the Powell Doctrine as a way to discipline the political leadership to answer the questions they need to answer to make the use of military force successful. So that he's saying uh, you need an exit strategy is to get the political leadership who are properly the people making decisions about that disciplined enough to think about what is the end state we want and does the use of military force actually take us there? I think that I'm not going to either either uh, defend or, or denounce the Powell Doctrine uh, because I think that, oh, like everything else, you know, sometimes that's right. Sometimes you go in big and you get out and that's the right way to do it. Sometimes that's not the right way to do it. Um, but I think that the, you know, the, the, the bigger problem is that we don't do, we don't, we are not very good as a nation at understanding or preparing for the interlinkage between these quote-unquote strictly military and the, and the political realm. Um, and we make that mistake over and over and over again. And that that's, you know, we're constantly screwing up as a result. I mean, Richard Fontaine, I, th- I think I might have quoted this before, Richard Fontaine over at the Center for New American Studies uh, had, a, had a good line. He said, uh, look, when, from the perspective of the American people, uh, we went into Iraq and we occupied, we went into Iraq militarily, we occupied the country and it turned out to be a disaster. Uh, we had a military intervention in Libya and we didn't occupy the country and it turned out to be a disaster. In Syria, we didn't have a military intervention and we didn't occupy a country and it still turned out to be a disaster. So, you know, we just screw everything up. Everything we touch gets messed up. And that's, that's you know, that's how it looks to the American people. And I think there's truth to that. And I think Obama's at the moment in a, in a no-win situation. You know, there will be plenty of people mad at him for leaving troops in Afghanistan. There will be plenty of people mad at him for not having more troops in Afghanistan, et cetera. But I, but I think that, you know, the, the challenge for political leaders is 
recognizing what capabilities the military has and doesn't have and what capabilities our civilian agencies have and don't have. And everything, this is a shifting topic slightly, everything about the decision-making and planning process, both on the Pentagon side and on the civilian side, pushes against honest assessments of our capabilities ever getting to the top-level political leadership. By the time anything gets to, gets to the White House, the downsides, to some extent, have been sanitized. And the answer, can we do this, is always, yes, yes, sir, if you want to do this, we're going to do it. We can do it. And, and a lot of the time, we can't. A lot of the time, we can't. Well, let's, let's, let's break that down. And let me turn to you, Tom. Um, first of all, you, you may want to address the opening part of what Rosa just said, because you know, I, there's a th to me, when I listen to a statement like the one that you attribute to Fontaine there, um, what, what, I, what I hear is, you know, that there's these three different things that went wrong, and therefore there may be some kind of connection between them. But the, the possibility is we screwed up three times with three different wrong strategies, you know, and, sure. and I think that, you know, that seems to be more likely the case. But you get to something really core here, and that is that the issue isn't whether you can go in with U.S. troops or with troops of, uh, uh, you know, an uh, uh, international coalition and achieve certain tactical objectives. The, 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 we, we can do that. Um, uh, we can lay waste to an entire country. What we're really bad at is stabilizing the situation and carrying over military success to political and economic um, success. And, and one of the things that's always struck me is we don't even have the mechanisms in the U.S. government to do. This is the kind of thing. It comes up every single time we do something. And then we say, well, who do we turn to? And there's nobody in the State Department who's really good at this, although they've tried to set it up. There's no, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers doesn't want to be nation building and they get thrown in and they, they, they kind of hate it. There's no coordination between the civilian side and the military side. This is always where we come up short. Is, uh, or do, am I overstating it, Tom? Um, I think you're misstating it. Well, oh, well, I feel better now. <laughs> that's, that's, that's us. We fail better. That's going to be our slogan. Well, Avis, we try harder. We fail better. <laughs> it reminds me of my favorite, my favorite coffee cup from Afghanistan, uh, from Iraq. We were winning when I left. Um, I think it's a problem of process. Uh, and process is two parts, uh, how you interact uh, and how you talk about it. I think our basic vocabulary of strategy is poverty-stricken. There is no such thing as an exit strategy. There is no exit unless you're going to exit into isolationism. There is, you will be involved. There is no end state unless you have an apocalypse. So I think cross those two words off the list, and I would actually cross stabilization off the list. We pretend our goal is stabilization, but from day one, we have been a revolutionary force in the Middle East. If all we wanted in Iraq was stability, I got your man for him. We found him in a hole outside of Tikrit. <laughs> uh, his name was Saddam Hussein, and Iraq was a very stable country before we intervened. It has not been stable since. So I don't even think our goal is stability. Uh, I've actually talked, I think, uh, was I teasing you, Corey, once about how we needed a... Um, Oh, no, no, it's Janine Davidson. We need a uh, manual not on um, counterinsurgency or stability operations, but on revolutionary operations. And the answer you get from the U.S. military is, homie, don't play that game. But actually, we do. Is that really the answer you get from the U.S. military? Yes. 
uh, we do stability, we don't do revolution. Well, I'd say, I remember these guys would tell me, we're here conducting stability operations, and I'd say, where is that in your orders? And it wasn't in their orders. But the U.S. military, especially the Army, decided, well, that's, that's what we do. And so from day one, Bremer was conducting revolutionary operations as the head of American civilian operations in Iraq. The U.S. military was at odds with him conducting stability operations. So I think we don't understand what we're talking about. We don't have the strategic vocabulary to discuss it. And we don't have a process. We, Especially under President Bush, and Corey, correct me if you think I'm wrong here, but it struck me that Bush always sought consensus in his meetings. And that's the opposite of what you want to do in a strategic discussion. You want to explore differences. Why do you think that? Why do you assume that? You want to explore why the State Department thinks one thing and the Pentagon thinks another, and what do you do about that? Uh, President Roosevelt in World War II was very good at this. I think that Obama has been somewhat better than Bush, but has still been kind of a strategic uh, junior partner in these discussions. Well, actually, Roosevelt was known particularly for actually playing one hand against the other. That was that was his strength. And in fact, the entire national security structure of the United States was established by pressure of his former cabinet members after the war saying we can't go through that again we need a, a somewhat different strategy and that's that yeah because it kind of sucked to win let's let's come up with this since they invented that structure we haven't won anything wow oh for 75 years but but let's 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 you know sort of move um past that can i take a shot at the at the whole of government operations that that kind of undergirds this discussion about uh, why why our motto is we fail better. <laughs> because I, you know, there was a time when we were good at this, right? And it was the end of World War II. Stanford University had a few hundred military people who were brought through a specialized curriculum to, to learn how to run an economy in an occupied country, to think about setting up local um, democratic structure, all that kind of stuff. And so there was a time when we actually felt comfortable with the military doing that. And we, I think, properly would like that to be a civilian um, set of expertise. But we're now, what, almost 15 years at war, and we still can't do it. And we can't do it because nobody builds the capacity except the military. Well, look, this is one of my bugaboos. Every time you know, we go into a war, somebody at some point says, oh, we need a Marshall Plan. We need to do it like we did it after World War II. But the problem with that is that after World War II, certain conditions existed that have never existed since. First of all, we won a total victory. We were able to impose our will, and we were willing to impose our will. Secondly, we had a imminent threat that required that we rebuild these places rapidly because we saw them as a buffer against that threat, and it motivated us to spend whatever we needed to spend in order to do that. And thirdly, both of the places we were rebuilding had actually been successful places before with real economies that had worked, and we were actually rebuilding. We weren't starting from scratch. Most of the times that we've tried to do this since then 
have not had any of those conditions. I absolutely agree with you, David. I think all of those conditions pertain. I'm not arguing that we need a Marshall Plan for Iraq. I'm arguing that strategy is the art of connecting political objectives to the means available to achieve those objectives. And we are over-invested in the military means, and it's our default, and we are not building the capacity to do the other stuff that you're going to need, especially if a country hasn't been successful and you're having to, to, to pull it, cajole it, incentivize it towards a better outcome than they had. Let me, let me twist the, the conversation slightly, pivoting off of what you've just said. And I want to pose a question to Tom and then... Rosa, and then and and we can go from there. But the outcome in Iraq doesn't seem to have been too good. It may have been for a moment. It may have been on Tom's mug, you know. <laughs> you know that it may have seemed like for a moment it was it was it was it was good. But we went in. We didn't achieve our goals. We had to rethink them several times. Um, the, you know, there was a moment of stabilization. Since then, it's been a mess. We've now intervened to go in after ISIS. We're not really achieving much. Um, uh, in Afghanistan, we are long into this thing. Um, you know, there is an ebb and flow. But there's a sense that if we leave quickly, you're back to where you started. And in fact, it may be worse because you've now got the Taliban and ISIS there, right? Mm-hmm. Some of the responsibility for this must lie with the military. Yet I don't see any sort of great national outrage saying, hey, you know, the military's really been screwing up for the past 15 years. Oh, you just pitched it slow and over the plate to Tom <laughs> Ricks. Take a swing, my friend. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it amazes me that the U.S. military um, really has walked away from both these wars saying, we did pretty good. Their bottom line is, we did our job. Uh, but we were failed by our civilian leadership, or more discreetly, the rest of the government didn't show up, which is uh, code for the civilians let us down. Uh, You know, it bothers me. Uh, The current Secretary of Defense is a guy named Ash Carter, fairly obscure in American life right now, but nonetheless overseeing the U.S. military establishment. In all of his speeches, Ash Carter says, we have the finest military instrument the world has ever known. And I think that's an utterly false statement, because your military is only as good as its ability to deal with the problems it faces. And just because you can crush people under your tank treads doesn't mean you can address the problems. We have a military that's very good at fighting battles. It's not very good at winning wars, and it doesn't think that's its job anymore. It doesn't know how to think about winning wars. Uh, And it is not willing to look back soberly and coldly over its mistakes of the last 15 years. Instead, it's kind of hiding in the basement and focusing on tactics. Um, We always talk about strategic corporals, how the corporal can have a real strategic effect. Um, But we don't talk about the fact that we have tactical generals, which is, I believe, a term that Peter Singer then at Brookings came up with. Uh, We have a military that is not a very adaptive instrument. It always talks about readiness. Well, that's an industrial-era term. Uh, you need to be more adaptive to problems than you need to be ready for problems. Yet they still talk about readiness every damn day. I think that's absolutely true, but I'm not willing to let the civilian side off the hook either. Uh, you know, I think that I think that we 
live in a in a political environment in which the in which nobody outside the Pentagon has the slightest interest in significantly reforming how the military is structured, organized, et cetera. I mean, there's, we have tactical generals for a reason. We have tactical generals because the military personnel system uh, privileges people who go into combat arms career paths, and then after rewarding those who are tactically successful at low, ta people who are tactically successful at lower levels get rewarded by being put in strategic jobs, which they don't necessarily have any particular capacity to do well. You know, and and these these things are these are changeable. I mean, these are these are as you know, Tom. You know, these are functions of how we recruit, how we train, how we how we educate, what our doctrines are. They're functions of how Congress chooses to structure the military itself. Uh, how the military personnel system is structured, military assignments are structured. There is no interest on the congressional side or within the civilian leadership in radically rethinking how the military operates. And unless and until that happens, the nature of the system itself gives it, you know, it's a classic collective action problem, you know, that I actually think that, you know, the military, like all other institutions, is not, in fact, homogeneous. You talk, there are plenty of individuals in the military who will say, exactly what you just said, and also say quite bluntly when they're being honest, uh, the problem is I have no incentive to say this out loud because it'll just screw up my career because you don't get rewarded for being critical and you don't get rewarded for being strategic and nobody even knows what that means because the top people who decide whether or not you get promoted aren't strategists themselves. Uh, so what am I going to do about it? So, so, I, think, so I, I think it is, you know, you're, you're, you're completely right. But it just, you know, it takes two, right? It takes both sides oh, to screw up I, wrote, I wrote a couple of books about the yeah. screw-ups of, yeah. of the civilians on this. But, I mean, everybody understands the civilians screwed up. But there's not a lot of discussion of how the military screwed up. I actually think the best way to understand this is psychologically, is that leaders, when they fail, regress to the, the last success level at which they had success. Uh, so in Vietnam, you saw this in the phenomena of the uh, squad leader in the sky, the generals and the battalion and brigade commanders flying over units in combat, uh, hovering there in helicopters, you know, uh, radioing down orders, because they were at least that's what they knew how to do. They didn't know how to run a war successfully in Vietnam, but they didn't know how to run a firefight. And so I think there's a reason that you see top military leaders tiptoe backwards from strategy back down to the level of operations and even to tactics mm -hmm. because they're comfortable in that sure. area. No, and what you need, and you have civilians likewise who don't know how to talk about strategy, you don't even understand the law, who don't understand that it's the job of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to give his personal opinion. He is required to tell you, to tell Congress what he thinks. Um, I've heard the Obama White House uh, very much politicizing the process, treated the generals as if they were administration appointees who must toe the administration line, which is a total mis misunderstanding of the role of the military professional. And, and how much of the responsibility for that do you attribute to the military, Tom? 49 percent. 49 percent. 51% has to be the civilians because they're in charge. They are the ones in the position to hire and fire. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs can't fire the president. The president can fire the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, and so you do need the president as a, as a strategic interlocutor saying, why do you say that? Why does he disagree? Why do the, the, are the chiefs voting 4-2-1 on this? Tell me what the problem is here. 
And I don't think Obama did enough of that, partly because he didn't trust the military. Partly because I think they have had a very politicized national security process with campaign types sitting in the situation room when decisions are being made. Corey. I agree uh, both that it is um, it's a weird and unhealthy sign that the defense establishment feels the need to consistently reiterate that we have the best military in the world. And it goes to Tom's point about the psychological state of the institution that that at some level it is an acknowledgement of failure that they have to keep saying, yes, yes, despite the fact that for 15 years we haven't won the two wars we're fighting, uh, we are nonetheless the world's best military. The second thing is, uh, I agree with Tom's 5149, that it seems to me that every administration gets the military leadership it deserves because if you want people you're going to be comfortable with, they are in all likelihood not going to be people whose military judgment, like military, it's a different culture. It's rougher edged. It's uh, They are less attuned to the political and niceties of this kind of decision-making. So they're not going to be comfortable, but they are the people that you want when things go bad. Well, isn't, isn't part of this problem um, almost cultural at this point? You know, since Reagan, since the beginning of the post-Vietnam era, it has become almost heretical to say the military made a mistake. The military did something wrong. The minute you do it, there is a massive chorus from someplace saying not that you're wrong, but that you're un-American, that you're unpatriotic, that you hate your country, you know, and that we have gotten to the point where for nearly 40 years, any serious criticism of the military of the United States is equated with not loving the United States. And, and we're not supporting the truth. Or, yeah. Right. And, and well, which is the same thing, which, it, you know, to me, this is a, 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 a pathologically, um, uh, you know, a d- dysfunctional atmosphere in which to actually, you know, oversee and conduct, you know, foreign policy and national security. I think that's right. And it's David, the- I think you're exactly right there. But um, and, and I'm not saying that just because you're the boss. <laughs> Um, but you're also very handsome, David, as well as being that's, right. That's, that's, that's true. And I told you of the body. Of the yeah. Oh, oh. Uh. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm going to break into this conversation right here. To yeah, say, because she to, doesn't to, want anyone to, to know what the origin of that <laughs> story two, is. To, <laughs> to say two things. But I, I want to no, no, I'm like, I'm, no, you don't get to say anything. said enough. Okay, two things. The first is that um, it is true that the... That the you know yellow ribbon on cars, the the way that you know it's unquestionably a vote loser to say something negative about the American military, is a weird cultural feature of this country. Other militaries, when they come to the United States, marvel that our veterans can complain about their treatment by the rest of society because their treatment is so much better than it is anywhere else. You know, as a military spouse, I really think the Home Depot discount is a little too small. <laughs> I'd like to see it go up a bit to 20%. The other thing is that, so Jim Madison and I run a project at Stanford on 
gaps between civilian and military attitudes. And Rosa Brooks wrote a terrific chapter for our book that I feel like you should reprise right here because it goes to this point about things that our broader society doesn't understand about our military. Yeah, I mean, there's you could just Thomas, read, read, Thomas. read could from just, your own work. <laughs> that would be that yeah. would be interesting, more interesting for everybody. I think. And, and Tom obviously wrote the original book on this in his his book some years back on the Marine Corps. Um, you know, I, I I think both the both on the military side, there are all sorts of ways in which the culture uh, tends to lead people to see civilians as outsiders, not us. They'll never understand us. They're not like us. Uh, and in fact, they're they're big fat, lazy slobs with crummy values and no self-discipline. Uh, and on the civilian side, we, we substitute for any actual interest in understanding the military, how it works, what the challenges are, what the problems are. You know, instead of that, we substitute all this rah-rah, I support the troops stuff. It, it, you know, and, and we could go in a lot of different directions with this, David, and I don't want to plunge into civil-military gap discussion uh, and steer us away from what we have been talking about. But but I think a piece of it that – just just to focus on a single piece of it that Corey touched on earlier, the, the military planning process uh, has, you know, a manual 400 pages thick or something like that to tell you what it means to plan and how you do it and you have to have – you know, you have to fill in the little blanks on a piece of paper. This is what are your assumptions, what are your constraints, et cetera. And that's a really good thing. And there are all sorts of ways in which the incredible professionalization of the military is obviously really good. Everything gets written down. Everything gets a process. That's how you make an institution that has millions of people who change all the time function well, is that you make everything very, very bureaucratic and regimented. Um, that process, of course, also means, and this is it's the it's the nature of large bureaucratic organizations. You know, it stifles innovation. It 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 it's the opposite of adaptability. It means that when the president, any president or any civilian appointee, goes to military leaders and says, uh, "I need you to help me figure out what we're going to do about Place X," a lot of the time, the answer that comes back is. Um, well, unless you can state your objectives, your constraints, your assumptions, et cetera, et cetera, I can't really do anything for you. And even if you can do that, uh, give me a year and I'll come back to you with 200 pages of planning. And, and you know, the, the, the complete mismatch between sort of how we train military folks to think about what it even means to say the word plan or planning – Versus how civilians tend to think about, we think of it as you know, you take out your, you take your napkin out and you start scribbling stuff on the back of your napkin with a pencil, um, which is you know really a different way to approach things. What's a pencil? Go, go on, Corey. <laughs> I want to take this back actually to civil military relations, but through it back to our point of departure on Afghanistan and Iraq, which is the great danger of bad civil military relations is not a military coup. That's just false. The great danger of poor civil-military relations is that you have poor strategy, poor planning, poor execution, and poor use of the military. Exactly. And that's what we've seen a lot of over the last 15 years. See, civilian leadership in the executive that doesn't know how to talk about strategy, that's matched by generals that can't or won't talk about strategy, and a Congress that is simply not interested in proper oversight. Interestingly, uh, within this context that you're talking about, David, of sort of this mindless cheering for the military, what I've seen in the last 25 years at the Pentagon was that the two secretaries of defense who really won the affections of the military 
were not cheerleaders, but actually men who asked hard, tough, intelligent questions. The first was Bill Perry under um, Clinton. The second was Bob Gates under Bush and under Obama. These were tough-minded secretaries of defense who pushed the military hard, and the military welcomed that. They felt they had adult leadership. So I actually think the military does respond well when it is led by serious people asking hard questions. But they don't get enough of it, and I think that's one reason they tend to resent and distrust both the White House and the Congress. Corey, it's it's true. This is also a bipartisan problem on the civilian side, right? On the Republican side, sometimes you have people who are either too reverential, not questioning enough, or just simply don't have some of the attributes Tom was talking about. On the Democratic side, there is less exposure to the culture in a lot of the people, certainly in this administration, and 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 there's been a good deal of distrust, uh, as we've seen in this this administration. So it's not it's not one side or the other, is it? That's absolutely right. It is a bipartisan problem. Uh, Tom would be a better judge than I, but about whether the complaints about the civilian leadership are louder in the Obama administration or whether they were in the Bush administration. Um, Because the way Donald Rumsfeld approached doing his job uh, actually very strongly alienated the military. I, I think he approached it like a turnaround expert. Whereas the military thought they were good at their job and and the friction that resulted from the kind of disrespect uh, that I think they also feel in the Obama administration, but for a different reason, right? Donald Rumsfeld's the person who should have connected President Bush's political objectives for the Iraq war to the military plans. And he signally failed at doing that because he was busy doing what majors do well, which is how many loaders do we have in this tip fit? Whereas in the Obama administration, I think there's a different sort of friction that the military feels very uncomfortable with uh, the way decisions are being made and the role of political people who neither know nor care about the professionalism aspects that Rosa was talking about. Well, look, I think... That's about as good a summary as I've ever heard of the problems in the two administrations. I I agree with you, and that's why I think uh, it's a good place to wrap up this particular podcast. I think we've identified a serious problem. We've identified that it's got components both in the military and in the civilian side, that it exists on both uh, the part of Democrats and on the part of Republicans, and it's existed for a long time. And uh, unfortunately, the cost of this dysfunction um, is not just borne by taxpayers. It's not just borne by, you know, frustrated analysts who want to, you know, critique it. It's borne by the military who have to actually live with um, uh, bad decisions or inadequate planning or, uh, you know, being put into difficult situations. People and getting it's, killed. And yeah. they're getting killed. And it's also borne by the people in the countries that Absolutely. we intervene in, in. Uh, who uh, end up seeing um, uh, their countrysides despoiled. They lose lives, too. And, you know, this, this is a, a reason that this is such an important issue and why it is so baffling Uh, to me, that it is discussed so little. And it's important, and I hope that we've uh, perhaps started a little bit of that discussion. We'll be back with another uh, discussion on issues just like this in the next uh, episode of the ER podcast. Thank you very much.
You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe, please visit foreignpolicy.com. And thank you very much for joining us.